You're going to love this. Just love it. Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyan. We're off today, but we've put together some of our important recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's show, we delve into the incredible election integrity nightmare that voters in Philadelphia are fighting and successfully challenging so far. Kevin Skoglund of the nonpartisan Citizens for Better Elections and the Protect Our Vote Philly Coalition explains the stunning security vulnerabilities in the wildly expensive new 100% unverifiable computer voting system that the city of Philadelphia is very close to adopting and what they are doing to stop it. But first, constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser, justice editor at Think Progress, explains what just happened at recent oral arguments in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in a lawsuit brought by Republican state attorneys general trying to get the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, overturned in its entirety and what its loss would mean for millions of Americans. Milheiser also offers his thoughts on the recent passing of U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Here's part of that conversation. So please sit back and enjoy today's broadcast recounted. Well, that's what you get from stolen elections and stolen Supreme Courts. Uh, you conclude in your uh, coverage of the passing of John Paul Stevens uh, that he will be missed, not simply for what he did in his life, but for what he did not do as a justice. Stevens held one of the most powerful jobs in the country, and he respected Americans enough to use that power sparingly. Boy, oh boy, uh, good point, and uh, one that I wish uh, the, all of the justices right now would be reading, but particularly five in uh, in particular. I'm speaking with Ian Melheiser, the uh, constitutional law expert, editor of Think Progress Justice. Ian was uh, in the courtroom last week for uh, the oral arguments in this appellate case in the conservative Fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. This uh, case challenging Obamacare, uh, where uh, a Texas judge has already ruled it should be struck down in its entirety. Uh, this is a case brought by uh, 20 or so Republican attorneys general and now the Trump Department of Justice, uh, who seeks to strike it down uh, completely. And um, when I mean, it was originally seen as a pretty quixotic challenge to the landmark health care yeah. law, uh, at least until that lower court judge in Texas found on the side of the challengers. And now, as the case is before this very right wing Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, you suggest the law could be in trouble. Be what, what's the general basis for this case that so many had scoffed at previously, Ian? Oh, good Lord. 
it. I mean, this is the stupidest case I have ever seen. Well, it's stupid, me, but it, it's it's moving ahead successfully. Yeah. Well, well let, let, let me take a step back and explain why it's, it's moving ahead. Okay. So this case was filed in the northern, in the Fort Worth division of the Northern District of Texas. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that little geography lesson matters is because there's exactly one active federal judge in the Fort Worth division of the Northern District of Texas. His name is Reed O'Connor. He was a former Republican Senate staffer, and he is a hack. <laughs> and they knew that if they got it in front of Reed O'Connor, Reed O'Connor would be a rubber stamp for whatever legal theory they came up with, and sure enough, he was. So they got it into a kangaroo court. The other advantage in filing it in the Fort Worth Division of the Northern District of Texas is that Judge O'Connor's opinions appeal to the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit is one of the most conservative courts in the country. The two Republicans on this panel were really wacky, and they behaved really partisan in the in a really partisan way in the oral argument. But they're not actually outliers on that court. In fact, if anything, they're the median judges on that court. There are several judges on there who, like, I, you know, I think liberals like a lot less than the than these than these two than these two. Mm-hmm. So the point of this litigation strategy is not to come up with a viable legal theory and then win fair and square. The point of it is to. File before a guy who you know is going to buy whatever theory you, you, you come up with. Which they did. Have it, yep. Have it appeal up to a court where you're probably going to get a panel that's going to affirm them because they're pretty ideological and that's the outcome that they want. And then use that process of getting two court decisions that if you don't know much about what's going on seem legitimate to kind of legitimize the entire process mm-hmm. and try to create the political space to make it easier for the Supreme Court to affirm the decision. Now, again, Chief Justice Roberts has flipped over and voted with the Democrats to save the Affordable Care Act twice. Mm-hmm. This is a much dumber legal theory. Right. I think that so long as the membership of this Supreme Court stays the same, I think that Roberts is probably going to do the right thing here. But... These guys know how to breathe life into hot garbage, and that's what they did here. <laughs> well, the, so the hot garbage is basically Affordable Care Act included a mandate right. that you had to uh, you have to own health care, and if you don't, you pay a penalty that uh, John Roberts uh, described in a previous challenge to be a tax. Then, if I have this right, in the I think it was the 2017 uh, tax cut that was uh, passed by the Republicans to for the rich yep. people, they zeroed out the amount of that tax to zero dollars. So you still have to buy health care under the Affordable Care Act, but if you don't, the penalty is now zero dollars. Right? There actually exactly. there, there is no penalty, and so the argument that they're making is because there is no penalty. This is no longer a tax, and therefore the rest of the law somehow becomes unconstitutional. It sounds ridiculous when I describe it. I must be describing it wrong. What am I missing there, Ian? No, you're missing nothing. It is indeed exactly that ridiculous. So, so yeah, the original law before, like, before the 2017 tax bill said you had a choice. You can either buy health insurance or, or pay a tax. Mm-hmm. The 2017 law said that you still have a choice. Your choice is now you can buy health insurance or you can pay zero dollars. That's your choice. Right. So 
the wall as it is written now does nothing, nothing at all. It's a completely not you, you, you know non-effective provision. It says that your obligation is to pay is to pay zero dollars. Mm-hmm. So the plaintiff's argument is that because that provision was originally written as a tax, right, or it was originally upheld by the Supreme Court as a tax, right, it it no longer qualifies as a tax because it raises zero dollars. And since it raises zero dollars, that means it's now unconstitutional because it's not a tax anymore. That's like I think that's wrong, but that doesn't actually matter because who cares <laughs> if a provision of law that does nothing is constitutional or not? Like, oh no, you know, you're going to strike down my nothing. You know that, that that that's what should be at stake in this case. Well, but then it gets weird. Yeah. Okay, so where it gets weird is this. There's a it's called severability. So right. Severability is when one provision of a law is struck down, courts have to ask whether Congress would have wanted more of the law to fall along with it if they had known that this one provision was going to fall. Now, first of all, there's a huge presumption in favor of not striking down more than the one provision, mm-hmm. but the Supreme Court says it must be evident that Congress would have intended more of the law to fall. And you don't even need that presumption here, because we know exactly what Congress would, would have wanted. Congress passed a law, and that law repealed one provision of the law, the individual mandate, it zeroed it out, and it did nothing else. That's the law they passed. So what we know from the fact that Congress revealed, repealed one provision of the law and then did nothing else, is that they intended to repeal just one provision of the law, and then they want nothing else to happen. This isn't hard. Well, did this argument get made? It it does seem clear that was the adjustment that they made to Obamacare. They made the mandate mandate tax zero dollars. That was the change they made. That was obviously what Congress wanted. Did the the attorney who was defending Obamacare actually make that argument during oral arguments last week? Oh, sure. Sure he did. I, I mean, like, the problem is that, the, that there were two judges who were just a bunch of facts. Like, you know, the problem is there are two partisans on that court who are so drunk on their own ideology, or maybe I should be more charitable to them. Maybe they're just drunk on their own motivated reasoning. Mm. But whatever it is they've been drinking, it has led them to miss the most obvious thing that, 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 I, that could exist in the law. And so here we are on the cusp, and you know, we're probably going to get a decision from these two judges striking down the entire Affordable Care Act. And, and it's important to know what the stakes are there. There are 20 million people right now who are, who are insured because of the Affordable Care Act. 20 million. Yep. There's, a, there's a study a while back that looked at Massachusetts' health, um, health reform, mm-hmm. and it found that for every 830 people um, who gained health coverage, approximately one is saved every year. One life is saved every year. Mm-hmm. So if these judges get what they want, that means 24,000 people will die every single year, year after year, for as long as their decisions stand, because they did not follow the law. You know, if, if, if an invading army did that, we would call it an atrocity. That's the sort of thing peacekeepers are sent in to stop. Mm-hmm. And that's what they want to do here. And the other argument that you make, uh, that you point out in your uh, in your coverage, I think progress, Ian, is that 
the arguments that the judges that you described, the two Republican judges down there that you describe as hacks, and by the way, who were they appointed by? Do you, uh, I, I forgot to look that up, those two Republicans. Oh, one is George remember? W. Bush appointee, and one, of course, is a Trump appointee. Oh, good, okay. So uh, th- those two judges, you say, they seem to ignore the fact that, that, that they seem to be looking at something that J- Chief Justice John Roberts has already ruled on, and the court already ruled on in the previous case, the uh, NFIB versus Sibelius, the previous challenge in which John uh, Roberts upheld this as constitutional. Why? Uh, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding why they were even entertaining that argument in a lower federal court if it was already determined uh, at the Supreme Court. Is this another case of they're not even paying attention to precedent at this point? So, so the theory, the plaintiff's theory, is that NFIB held that the, that the individual mandate is, is constitutional because it is an exercise of Congress's taxing power. Mm-hmm. And so their theory is if it is no longer functioning as a tax, if it is now raising zero dollars, then it can no longer be a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power, and therefore the zeroed-out mandate is unconstitutional. And, like, that in and of itself is not a frivolous argument. You know, they're, they're, I think it's wrong. Right. But, like, that part right there, that, like, a mandate that does nothing is not a tax and therefore cannot be upheld under the taxing power is a non-frivolous claim. But here's the problem. The problem is that even if you accept that, they've got two glaring holes in their argument. The first one is what I said before, which is that their severability analysis makes no sense. Like, if the, the nothing burger mandate is unconstitutional, <laughs> right. then the solution is to strike it down so that the nothing burger mandate continues to do nothing. It's not to repeal the entire law. There's no basis right. for repealing the entire law. The second problem with their argument is more basic, and it's this. It's that there's a principle known as standing. So mm-hmm. you are not allowed to bring a lawsuit in federal court challenge a law unless you can show that you have been injured in mm-hmm. some way by that law. Like right. you know, you, there has to, you, Your plaintiff has to be someone who in some way is, is made worse off, and it could be a very minor injury. You know, if it costs you a cent, mm-hmm. that's enough. But there has to be some kind of injury mm-hmm. to the plaintiff. And the provision they're challenging, the individual mandate, does nothing. You know, it, it is a requirement to pay a zero-dollar tax. Nobody is being no hurt. No one is injured. Right. Yeah, like, like no one is hurt if they are forced to pay zero dollars. So but why do they think that John Roberts will therefore support this if he's rejected this, if it's uh, looking like they may not even have standing? I mean, here's what I worry about, Ian, and, and we're, I'm running short on time here, but, you know, a lot of people didn't think Donald Trump was going to win either, and they laughed that off. We didn't laugh that off. Uh, I, I see a lot of people looking at this case sort of laughing it off, saying, oh, this is impossible. It's not going to be struck down. No way this argument is so stupid. And yet... Uh, We now see uh, the Hill reports this week that Senate Republicans are sort of in a bit of a panic and they are looking now to replace uh, the Affordable Care Act in the event that the courts strike down Obamacare. The Hill reports there is, quote, a sense of urgency among GOP lawmakers to come up with a plan to replace the most popular components of Obamacare. Uh, After the panel of appellate judges last week aggressively questioned whether the law passes muster, 
uh, et cetera, et cetera, if they are beginning to take it seriously, um, perhaps we should as well, Ian. No? Am I wrong? Well, well, I mean, well, first of all, if they're actually coming out with 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 a plan, it would be really easy to write. To, to you, know, I mean, I could write it in five minutes. You add a line to the wall saying, "If the individual mandate is struck down, everything else stands." You stupid moron! Like that, that's it. That, <laughs> but, but that's, 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 that's all. But that's not what they're doing. They're not striking down the individual mandate. They're striking down. They're moving to strike down the entire law. Well, no, 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 that, that's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. if you wanted to draft the wall. That like if what the Republicans actually wanted to do is save the people with pre-existing conditions and prevent this lawsuit from mm-hmm. succeeding, mm-hmm. they could do that today. Right. Like all they have to do is add a line to the Affordable Care Act saying everything else stands. Yeah, of course, but that's not right? what they want. They want to kill the whole thing, and they're not going to do exactly, that. Exactly. So yeah. they're not going to do that. Right. Yeah. Like like they're you know they they you know they they at the end of the day like. They don't want to take the political hit. Right. But, you know, given, you know, the fight that they went through in 2017 where they tried and, and, repailed, mm-hmm. and failed to repeal the whole thing, mm-hmm. I just don't believe that they're going to be crying, that, you know, that, 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 that they're going to be crying in their very expensive scotch if <laughs> they discover that, you know, some court decides to do what they were unable to do in, in, in 2017. Uh- uh, yeah, I, you, you, I think you're more optimistic than I am, because I think that they realize that if this does get struck down, they never wanted it struck down, you know, in, in truth. All they wanted to do was obviously to challenge Obama and, you know, they would have passed the exact same bill if there had been a Republican in there. But uh, so, you know, they were never really against it. Now, if this thing is struck down, this is going to be on their backs and they're going to have to come up with something to, uh, you know, restore insurance to millions of Americans, restore protections for all Americans for pre-existing conditions and so forth. Uh, I don't know. I, I just I think we ought to take it seriously uh, and and hope for the best. I'm worried that people aren't taking this seriously enough. Last question before I let you go, yeah. Ian. What's the uh, what's the timeline on this? If the uh, the, the three judge panel uh, upholds the lower court and says, yes, it must be struck down, then it goes to the Supreme Court, or does it go to the uh, full panel of the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals? So it's a good question. I think that if we get a relatively clean opinion from the Fifth Circuit just striking the wall down, then that could be appealed to the Supreme Court, and like we should get a decision, hopefully restore, hopefully upholding the wall by June of, 20, of, of 2020. Mm-hmm. I think the wild card is that the Fifth Circuit panel seems interested in a lot of kind of sneaky maneuvers that could delay resolution of the case. Mm. They could prevent, there are ways they could try to prevent it from being appealed. They could try to send it back to the lower court judge for some unnecessary, unnecessary proceedings. And so the danger is that they might try to extend the timeline there. And the reason why I say that's dangerous is because Well, I think it's fairly likely that the Supreme Court we have right now Mm -hmm. would uphold the would uphold the law. I think that if Trump gets another vote, all bets are off. And so the Mm. the longer this thing lasts, you know, the more time there is for potentially the membership of the Supreme Court to change in a way Mm. that would eliminate any kind of majority on the Supreme Court or you know, any kind of sense in this case. 
well, that just sent a chill down my spine. Thank you very much. Ian Milheiser, you can find his work at thinkprogress.org. He is the editor of Think Progress Justice and the author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. You can and should also follow him on the Twitters at I. Milheiser. Ian, uh, always great talking with you, my friend. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you. You bet. More chilling thoughts coming up next on Bradcast Recounted as Kevin Skoglund, chief technologist for the nonpartisan Citizens for Better Elections and the Protect Our Vote Philly Coalition, talks about how his group is so far challenging the state of Pennsylvania to reconsider a dangerous, costly, new, unverifiable electronic voting system that has some pretty shocking security vulnerabilities. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to Bradcast Recounted. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. In his recent landmark U.S. House testimony, former special counsel Robert Mueller issued a chilling warning that the Russian government and other foreign adversaries are attempting to infiltrate the U.S. election system right now. To strengthen the security of U.S. elections, Democrats in the U.S. House recently passed H.R. 1, comprehensive legislation to protect voting rights that importantly, also mandates hand-marked paper ballots for all voters who want one. In the U.S. Senate, Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has introduced a bill that would also mandate hand-marked paper ballots for every voter in the country to protect against the high risk of manipulated or erroneous election results and to help ensure that results are verifiable by the public after an election is over, as recommended by computer security and voting system experts. But Wyden's bill, the Protect American Voting and Elections, or PAVE Act, languishes in the Senate because Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has vowed to block all election-related bills that might make our democracy more secure in advance of the 2020 presidential elections. Now, why would McConnell do that? Meanwhile, many states are considering replacing their old, unverifiable, computerized touchscreen voting systems with new, equally unverifiable, computerized touchscreen voting systems. Here's Brad's conversation with Kevin Skoglund of the Protect Our Vote Philly Coalition on the gobsmacking security vulnerabilities in a new system under consideration in Philadelphia and what they're doing to stop it before it's too late. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, organized by election security advocates, 200 Pennsylvania voters filed a petition this past week seeking to force the Pennsylvania Department of State to reconsider its approval of a 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting machine 
known as a computerized ballot marking device, or BMD, that was selected by local officials for use in upcoming elections in Philadelphia and other counties in the crucial Keystone State. Those machines, the Express Vote XL, made by what the Philadelphia Inquirer accurately describes as the election mega vendor, known as ESNS or Election Systems and Software, those systems have security flaws and do not comply with the state election code, according to the voters in their petition that was submitted by certified mail and email this past Tuesday, signed by voters from about uh, five or six different counties and the great city of Philadelphia. State law in Pennsylvania gives voters authority to trigger a new state review of previously certified electronic machines. The, peti the uh, petitioners lay out a number of concerns with these systems, including the possibility of attackers altering votes, ballot secrecy being violated by comparing the chronological stack of ballots that are created to the poll books, poll workers inadvertently inadvertently seeing voters' choices while trying to help them, and the lack of accessibility for voters with disabilities, which, by the way, these machines are supposed to help, not hurt. They also point to requirements in the state election code that they say the machines do not meet, do not meet at all. An ESNS spokesperson rejected those contentions. He says that the Express Vote XL protects voters' privacy, is accessible for voters with disabilities, and does not allow manipulation of ballots after they are cast. But of course, ESNS, uh, as you know, if you've listened to this show or read bradblog.com over the years, they have a long and very well-documented history of both lying and of failed elections across the U.S., as, as we have uh, detailed in great specificity for about 15 years now. The system, they say, has been thoroughly tested and proven to be secure and accurate, according to a spokesperson from ESNS, which says they stand behind the security of the Express Vote XL 100 percent. That effort uh, to have these systems re-examined was led by Citizens for Better Elections and a group of activists, the Protect Our Vote Philly Coalition, which has now for months urged Philadelphia election officials not to choose the Express Vote XL. After city election admi administrators chose those systems anyway, the activists unsuccessfully called for the decision to be overturned, and then they lobbied other counties as well, but ultimately decided to go to the state. And uh, that's according to Kevin Skoglin, chief technologist for Citizens for Better Elections and a leader in this effort to promote hand-marked paper ballots over electronic machines in Philadelphia and the rest of the state as well. Skoglin said this week, at some point you realize that if the machine is not fit for use by these counties, then it is not fit for use by any voter in Pennsylvania to be voting on. These problems, he says, are severe. Now, all of this comes after 67 counties in the state of Pennsylvania are essentially forced to purchase new voting systems. Some have already done so at the order of the Democratic governor, Tom Wolf. Much of the state has for years used 100% unverifiable touchscreen or push-button type direct recording electronic voting systems, known as DREs, that record votes 
inside the system, either correctly or incorrectly. It's 100% impossible to know which, leaving results completely unverifiable after the polls close. Nonetheless, Governor Wolf's mandate for new voting systems did not include a mandate for actually verifiable hand-marked paper ballots, allowing mega vendors like ESNS to lobby counties and cities like Philadelphia to purchase these expensive, unverifiable computer systems for one for every voter at the polling place rather than the simpler, uh, simpler and cheaper and, yes, actually verifiable hand-marked paper ballots for every voter. No computer necessary to fill one out. Pennsylvania and the crucial city of Philly are not the only jurisdictions around the country to be moving to these 100 percent unverifiable systems. As I've long been warning, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, my own home county of Los Angeles, embarrassingly enough, is set to move to such a system before the crucial 2020 presidential elections. Republican-controlled swing states like Georgia are also moving from 100% unverifiable DRE systems to now 100% unverifiable BMD systems, as are counties in Texas, Iowa, Ohio, North Carolina, Kansas, and many other states where the outcome of elections will be crucial to who becomes the next president, not to mention thousands of state and local elections, many of which will determine how U.S. House and state legislative maps will be redrawn and redistricted for the next decade after the 2020 census. Suffice to say, next year's election is important and the ability for the public to know that results have been accurately tallied is even more so. While we have covered the fights over uh, these new systems in states like Georgia and here in Los Angeles, I've had more trouble getting a beat on what is actually going on in Philadelphia and why the hell they are moving to these terrible new systems, particularly in a Democratic stronghold in such an important state for the 2020 elections. But the fact that I've had a trouble uh, figuring out, uh, I have learned, is not entirely my fault. The entire situation in Philadelphia has been confusing and, frankly, very bizarre and remains uncertain to this day, even as they will be having municipal elections in just a few months in November. But that uh, confusion is uh, suggested by this petition to the state from those election integrity advocates to decertify or at least re-examine the ESNS Express Vote XL systems chosen by the Philadelphia city commissioners recently in a very truncated and some have argued unlawful selection process. Here to help us try and get up to speed or at least help wrap my head around Whatever the hell is going on in Philadelphia is Kevin Skoglin. He is the chief technologist for Citizens for Better Elections, which is a nonpartisan uh, non group advocating for resilient, evidence-based elections in Pennsylvania. There's a neat idea. The group is also a member of the Protect Our Philly uh, Coalition, and uh, Kevin has extensive experience in software development, cybersecurity, election systems. He is a technical advisor to the National Election Defense Coalition. He serves on the Cybersecurity Working Group for NIST. That's the National Institute of Standards and Technology and their, volunta uh, their Voluntary Voting Systems Guidelines Group. 
That's uh, That group advises the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, or EAC, to set uh, cybersecurity standards for the next generation of voting machines, though I might add they are taking their sweet time about it as the current federal voluntary voting system standards now in effect date back to 2005. In other words, any states that still bother to comply with the EAC's weak voluntary uh, federal standards for voting systems, and they are very weak, they're even weaker and more outdated than you may realize since there have been, you know, just a few advances in both technology and ways to thwart that technology in the decade and a half since the EAC last issued federal certification standards for these voting systems around the nation. Kevin Skoglin, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, and thanks for the work you're doing in Philadelphia and, and helping me get up to speed here. I realize this will not be easy, Kevin. And I, I, but before we get to the state's response to your group's petition this week and and what Philadelphia is doing with it, is it possible in, in just a minute or two, I don't know if it is, to explain how the hell the Philadelphia City Commission, which is actually the election commission there in the city, how they selected this particular BMD voting system that, uh, for reasons we will discuss, is actually seen as the worst and most dangerous, I think, of all of the 100% unverifiable BMDs that are out there. Yeah, it's, it's hard to sum up in short, but uh, I'll give it a shot. Okay. So... I think the first real critical mistake they made was they didn't get any public or expert input. Um, during 2018, when a lot of other counties were going around asking for expert opinion mm -hmm. and getting public feedback, they didn't do that. Uh, and then at the end of, of 2018, they put out an RFP, which is short for a Request for Proposals. Mm -hmm. That's where they go out to the vendors and say, this is what we're looking for. Here's the criteria you need to meet. Give us your best bid. Mm -hmm. And they put out that RFP and had a very short timeline. It was a two-month turnaround, one month for the vendors to respond, one month for them to evaluate it. So the whole process was very rushed. And it was clear to us right from the start, right from reading that, that RFP, that the criteria that they had put in there were skewed towards this particular machine. There was no criteria for things like security and resilience mm -hmm. and accessibility, things that we would expect to see in RFPs in other counties. And instead, they said, essentially, we want something that looks the same, that takes up the same space in the polling place as these old, huge machines that we have now. Mm -hmm. And there's only one of these machines that's that big and takes up the same space in the polling place. It's this ExpressVote XL. Made by ESNS, the nation's largest voting system company, by the way, who does a lot of uh, lobbying and whining and dining of election officials and you know flying them out to Las Vegas on, on junkets and everything else. So the uh, commission, which is a, a three-person commission in, uh, in Philadelphia, is that correct? Yeah, the way it works in Philadelphia is there's something called the city commissioners, mm -hmm. and they serve as the board, the board of elections. So you can think of it as just the Board of Elections, and it's a three-person board mm -hmm. that uh, then is in charge of voting systems. Uh, they had a selection committee that they, they appointed to do this evaluation, but the fix was already in. They had already put it in the RFP that 30% of the score was going to be based on these criteria that only one voting machine could make. Well, uh, do you have any sense of why? Why they uh, really wanted this specific machine from ESNS such that they wrote the RFP in a way that it could only essentially be uh, be met by ESNS? You know, that's a big mystery. We're still not completely sure. 
one reason is because they were running for office. Uh, they're going to be on the ballot this November. Mm-hmm. And one provision in the election code is that if you're running for office, you have to step down from your role on the election board. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to hurry up and make a choice so that they could step down and run for office. And so I think that's part of the reason they thought this would be the easiest. I think they may have thought this is closest to what we have now. It'll be the least you know, trouble. We won't have to think about the processes and potentially reconfigure polling places or any of that kind of business. We can just you know, make the choice and move on to, to campaigning. But one of the results of this selection, this you know, caused a lot of controversy. Mm-hmm. One of the results was that the city controller, who's sort of like an auditor, she's in charge of, mm-hmm. of looking at all of the purchases in the city and making sure that everything is done fairly, she launched an investigation of the results. So she's looking into it currently um, to see why is it that they did this and was it all above board? Because there's certainly a lot that, lot that smells here. Yeah, there certainly is. And uh, from my reporting as well, I've uh, come to understand that the uh, state uh, is not called attorney general. I'm, I'm forgetting what it's called out there in auditor, in, general. auditor general in Pennsylvania uh, is also looking at the uh, process, this particular selection process with some questions about it. Uh, that said, to get to the actual concerns of these voting machines, I mentioned uh, that, that uh, your group, a uh, number of groups actually band together to, to find this citizen's legal petition with the state asking for a re-examination of this particular system, the ESNS Express Vote XL, for about 10 different reasons. Most of them, it seems, have to do with uh, violations of various state laws, various state requirements for voting systems. So I'm not going to go through uh, all of them right now. I'd like to, for the moment, Hit the very first one that you guys list, which should be alarming, not just in Philadelphia and around Pennsylvania, but for any state who would consider using one of these uh, systems, this Excel vote uh, express vote system that's uh, described as an all in one system. It both prints the it's a touchscreen that both prints the selections for uh, that the voters make on the touchscreen. It prints them onto a paper ballot and then or a paper ballot summary card, I guess we should call it, and then that summary card is scanned by a separate computer that works with the same machine. What is the problem? What is the concern with uh, a system like that, Kevin Skoglin? Yeah, so up until this kind of recent generation of machines, we always had separate computers. We had a ballot-marking device that would mark a ballot or a piece of paper, and that would you take over to scan in a separate machine. Mm-hmm. And this ExpressVote XL is not the only one. Um, the, there's also the Dominion ImageCast Evolution is mm-hmm. another one. It's an all-in-one voting machine that both marks and tabulates. So they call it an all-in-one hybrid machine. Mm-hmm. And after this machine was certified in Pennsylvania, security researchers determined that there was a big flaw in these machines. And that flaw is that they have a single paper path. And what that means is that It takes the paper, the blank piece of paper, Mm -hmm. it sends it to a printer, you make your selections on the screen, it Mm -hmm. then prints those on the piece of paper, puts them back in front of the voter so that the voter can look at them and say whether or not they're happy with those selections. And once the voter says, yes, this is the ballot that I intend to cast, Mm -hmm. I'm happy with these selections, and they press a button on the machine, it sends that card back through the same printer again before it goes to the tabulator. And that's just a software-controlled printer. Uh-huh. So that, that means the machine has the opportunity to mark on that ballot 
potentially changing votes on it, invalidating votes on it, adding votes to it, uh, basically, you know, changing what the voter cast. And the voter would never know. And let me just sort of underscore uh, underscore what you're explaining here, because we've talked about, you know, we, we've spoken with uh, folks like uh, Rich DeMello from, the, uh, from Georgia Tech, who has been warning about the fact that people don't verify their computer-marked paper ballots. And even when they do, they often get it wrong. They don't notice when the computer has flipped uh, results. But what we're talking about here is the computer marks the, the, the voters' choices supposedly correctly, sends it out to the voter to, to get a look at, the voter uh, approves it or not, and if they approve it, it then goes back through that same path where it was printed the first time. And what you're saying, Kevin Skoglin, and, and other uh, uh, cybersecurity experts as well, that at that point, when that paper goes back through, new marks can be added to the ballot before it is then before it then goes into the box and the voter would never know. I that understand that correctly? That is absolutely right. The voter can do everything that's asked of them, everything right. They can verify that ballot and it still might not end up being the vote that gets cast. Uh, and this this <laughs> is a violation of a fundamental principle of being able to audit these yeah. paper ballots. And it's the whole reason we're going to paper ballots is to have good evidence of what the voter intended. And so a fundamental principle of that is that there shouldn't be any possibility of altering that paper evidence. You shouldn't give the computer a second chance to change that ballot before it's actually cast. That's this, right. It seems like a no-brainer. I can't even believe that a system like this was developed in the first place, much less certified uh, by the state, by any state who actually looked at this and would not notice this as a concern. Now, uh, as of yesterday, uh, when we spoke on the phone, you say that the, the state uh, has now granted your petition to re-examine. Is that correct? They've told uh, press outlets that that's what they intend. They released a statement to press outlets saying that they do intend that. Well, that's good news, I think. But uh, what happens now if the state actually decertifies the system that Philly has just selected through this uh, very fat, truncated process? Uh, they're already planning to use the, uh, th these machines this November, as I understand it, in municipal elections. You've already had primaries that were run on the old push-button system, uh, but they're going to—they're they're set to be used for municipal elections as sort of a test run for next year's presidential election uh, this November. Is that correct? Uh, they'll, they'll be used for the general election for for all voters for this general election. Um, that's the the intention. Yeah. Uh, but if, they, if this is decertified, then they would have to you know make other plans for this November and pick a new voting machine to comply with the directive to pick something by the end of the year. Is there even time to do uh, well? A a legitimate review of the uh, system that you're requesting that was that is currently planned for use in Philly. Is there time to do a proper review before the uh, November municipal elections and? If it is decertified, will there be time to put another system in place, or do they just go back to the old system? That I don't know. I don't know what's, what their resources are and what would be possible. Now, Pennsylvania, of course, Kevin Skoglin, was one of three states, as I'm sure you know, with, uh, along with Michigan and Wisconsin, that reportedly flipped for the first time in decades from Democratic to Republican in the 2016 election to give Donald Trump his electoral college victory, uh, though the public was never allowed to actually hand count the ballots in those three states. 
because hand counts uh, filed by uh, filed for by uh, the Green Party uh, candidate Jill Stein, they were blocked in all three states, essentially, despite the fact that had just three votes in each precinct on average across those three states been recorded for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump. She, not he, would be the president now. So. How crucial uh, is Philadelphia overall to the statewide results in in Pennsylvania? How many voters are we talking about there? How can that affect what happens in the statewide election? It is it is one million voters, one million registered voters, and it's one eighth of the entire state of Pennsylvania, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's one eighth. So between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, it's about a quarter of the entire Commonwealth. So a few votes, one way or another, uh, either nefariously or accidentally, in Philadelphia could certainly skew the results of a close statewide election there, right? It's, it's a million votes. I mean, that is, that is significant. I know that under uh, Pennsylvania law, absentee voting is, is not very easy. You have to give an excuse, I think, uh, of some sort to be allowed to do so. But those systems, the absentee ballots uh, in Pennsylvania, if you're allowed to use them, they're, they're hand-marked paper ballots, are they not? They are, and that was, you know, that's not in our petition because our petition is really focused on the legal aspects of mm-hmm. the flaws in this particular machine. Right. But it was one of the many issues we raised during our, our talking to the city commissioners was the fact that these machines are one of the only machines that don't allow any hand-marked paper ballots. They can't scan them. They scan only these little ballot cards, and they're locked in a box. There's no ability to sort of insert anything else in there, and they scan barcodes only. That's all they're capable of doing. So absentee ballots, emergency paper ballots, or paper ballots that are required by a lot of the legislation that's currently pending at the federal level that Mm -hmm. would require some hand-marked paper ballot to be in the polling place, you wouldn't have the ability to scan any of those. And with other systems, even ones that are ballot marking devices, you still have the ability to scan those. But this all-in-one system, it completely locks you out. And by the way, you, you threw something in there, Kevin, uh, that it that it only scans barcodes. <laughs> and that we haven't even talked about that yet on this segment. <laughs> so even if this uh, computer-marked uh, ballot summary card that you get to see, even if you look at it and even if you verify it and even if you verify it correctly and even if you then put that paper back through the same thing that printed it in the first place and it goes into the box and uh, even if it doesn't change your vote at that point, it's not even tabulating what you what the voter just approved it's actually going to do its tabulation from a barcode that is printed on the same ballot that no human being can actually read correct that is absolutely right and one of the points in our petition is that the election code doesn't allow for that the election code is very clear that there are some specific types of marks that are allowed it allows you to mark your ballot with an x with a check mark by filling in an oval or making a punch, like an old punch card. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't allow any provision for using a barcode. And I believe that the reason why is because the election code wants your votes to be transparent. It wants the voter to be able to look at them and say, yes, this is the vote that I intend to cast. And then they cast it and the machine reads it. And then an auditor on the other end can look at it and very clearly see what the voter intended to cast. There's not this, this barcode in between. And, and for those who don't know, these, these barcodes, if you take a barcode reader, a lot of cell phones mm-hmm. have barcode reader software you can get for them. Mm-hmm. If you scan one of these barcodes, it's not like it has the candidate's name in there. Right. What it contains is a six-digit number. So that's it. 
it's a six-digit number that means nothing to you. It means right. something to the system, right. but it means nothing to anyone else looking at it. So it, it is a mark that is completely non-transparent. You know, Kevin, I have spent many, many years uh, reporting on this stuff. And when I would uh, detail things like this, of course, people thought I was nuts. And, and I hope that people live listening, and I may be nuts, but I hope that people <laughs> listening to this segment... Because more Americans are finally beginning to get it, are finally beginning to understand how insane this is. I, you know, they used to call me a crazy man for, you know, the, pointing these things out. Oh, it's not that bad. It is that bad. It is that insane. And we're not even going back to a time when, you know, people really didn't understand. They didn't uh, appreciate the threats that are out there. Philadelphia chose this new system that we have just described in February of this year, correct? That is correct. I, I mean, I don't know what people are thinking. I don't know what they're paying attention to. The reason I had asked Kevin about that absentee uh, paper, uh, handmarked paper ballot system, could that not be used across the state of Philadelphia? It's already in use in the city for absentee ballots. Couldn't that be very quickly put into practice uh, for the state of Philadelphia? They already know how to use it. Uh, the city of Philadelphia, they already know how to use it. They've been using it for years. Wouldn't that be a perfectly acceptable uh, replacement to the unverifiable systems you have been using and these terrible new systems you're planning on using? And that's what we were trying to encourage them to do all along in this process, not only to have a, a fair, unrushed process that had public involvement, but to have handmarked paper ballots. Other big cities do it. New York does it. Mm -hmm. Boston does it. Baltimore does it. Chicago's about to switch to it. It's not like because you're a big city, you have to you know, do something different. Mm -hmm. right? This is something that, that big cities do all the time. And it's half the price. I mean, the, the price tag on this is just staggering. Yeah. These are the most expensive voting machines that there are. The, the price tag is $8,500 per machine, and then if you buy it through the, like the CoStars program that they have in, in Pennsylvania, cooperative buying program, it's like $9,000 each. So the total for, Pennsylvania, for Philadelphia is going to be $29 million. That's what these voting machines are going to cost, whereas a handmarked paper ballot solution mm -hmm. is going to be in the $15 million range. And that was in some of the proposals. I mean, so those aren't just made-up numbers. The proposals actually had those numbers in them, and they chose to go with a system twice the price. And, you know, you, you sort of uh, detailed a, 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 let's call it the least nefarious reason. Oh, they're running for election. They're going to have to uh, step down temporarily from the board while they run for re-election this year, so they wanted to just do something quickly and put it in place. But, in fact... You know, if they loved ESNS so much, ESNS also makes optical scanners. And in those cases, instead of buying uh, a, a computer for each voter, actually with these all-in-one systems, there's two computers for each voter who's voting. Instead, you buy one optical scanner for the entire precinct, and then everything else is, is, uh, is paper and pens. ESNS has systems that do that that could meet those criteria and would also meet the criteria from uh, Governor Wolf, who, who mandated uh, these new systems, correct? Brad, ESNS offered that system to Pennsylvania in their proposal, to, to Philadelphia in their proposal. They weighed that against this other system. This is nuts. Uh, this is nuts. And uh, frankly, while it's a, a, a local issue for you, I know, Kevin, uh, it's a national issue for all of us, given the what I mentioned about the presidential election and how crucial 
the Keystone State was to that back in 2016 and no doubt will be again in 2020. Last thought for now, uh, Kevin, given the other given the other BMD systems that were chosen by cities and counties and that they're also 100 percent unverifiable. I mean, we're focusing on the Express uh, Express Vote XL. But just to be clear, all BMD systems are equally unverifiable. Am I correct about that, Kevin? Yeah, what, you know, what I like to say is that the whole reason we're going to any kind of paper, whether it's paper ballot or paper record or anything, is we mm-hmm. want to have evidence, right? Evidence is, is the reason. So we can have something to recount and to audit. And so then we have to ask, well, what is the quality of that evidence? Because not all evidence is equal. And we know that from mm-hmm. the judicial system, right? DNA evidence is stronger than other forensic evidence. Uh, video evidence is stronger than eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. The difference here is that with a hand-marked paper ballot, the voter is directly verifying their intention as they mark each of those ovals. Mm-hmm. They, they are producing good evidence. There's very little distance between them and that durable record. But with a ballot marking device, you're putting a machine in between the voter and that evidence. And that machine is not as reliable. That machine can malfunction. It can fail to, to even boot mm-hmm. up. Um, it can be manipulated. Right. And that adds then this extra step, this verification step at the end, because now the voter has to not only create the evidence, they have to make sure that the machine did its job correctly. They have to verify that evidence. So there's this extra verification step. And as I'm sure Rich DeMillo has probably been on your show mm-hmm. and, and said, the problem is that voters just don't do it. Right. He, he did a study and, and determined that something like 50% of voters even bother to look at it. Right. And if they're not verifying that that's correct, then it's not very good evidence. And even if and they do verify it's correct, we can't know after an election whether they did or did not. So we're all right. left in the dark afterwards. And so that's sort of my concern, uh, Kevin, is that uh, you will be successful, that they will perhaps decertify this particular ex, uh, Express Vote XL made by ESNS and that the city will then choose a different BMD system. I'm wondering, you know, that is damn near as bad. Uh, maybe doesn't have that, uh, you know, the, the, the ability to reprint through the same paper trail. But, sure. Uh, but that they'll choose another BMD. Is there any reason that you know of why Governor Wolf did not mandate hand-marked paper ballots for all voters other than for, you know, disabled people who choose to use an assistive device? I do not know why. I, the position all along from the governor and the Department of State has been that counties should be allowed to choose for themselves. And I don't know why they decided that that was their approach, but that's the approach that they're taking. Well, uh, given what we know, and frankly, given the fact that Governor Wolf is a Democrat, it seems like he should know uh, that at this point, only hand-marked paper ballots uh, have a shot of being uh, accurately, uh, uh, you know, known to be tabulated correctly. Uh, Kevin Skoglin, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing out there. I'm so glad we are in touch. I hope you will stay in touch regarding this mess, and it really is a mess in Philadelphia and across Pennsylvania. It's really important uh, to the entire nation. Is there any way that uh, listeners... Uh, whether here or in Pennsylvania, uh, can somehow uh, help you guys help your efforts at Citizens for Better Elections or Protect Our Vote uh, Philly Coalition? I think the biggest thing is to follow us on Facebook or Twitter, either uh, Citizens for Better Elections, CB Elections on Twitter, Mm -hmm. or POV Philly, and 
keep in touch with information there, amplify the message that you see, um, pay attention to these issues, and you know, talk to your local officials about it, because this is not just unique to Pennsylvania. We happen to be on a sort of buying spree at the moment because everyone's required to yep. upgrade. But this affects other states as well. Delaware is using this same Express Vote XL machine statewide. Mm. Um, New Jersey is buying it for a number of counties. Mm. So this is not just a, a Pennsylvania-only issue. No, it's not. And it's not going to be solved by uh, folks in Washington, D.C., no matter how many cybersecurity officials at the uh, CIA and FBI and DNI that they put on this. This is up to us. This is up to we, the people. Kevin Skoglin is the chief technologist for Citizens for Better Elections. Uh, you can follow their work on the Twitters at CB Elections, as he says, and Protect Our Vote Philly is POV Philly on the Twitters. You can find both of them on Facebook. Kevin, really appreciate you getting us up to speed here, and I suspect I will be bothering you again in the not-too-distant future as this, as this moves forward. Please stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. And that's it for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks so much to our guests, Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert at Think Progress, and Kevin Skoglund of Citizens for Better Elections. And of course, to you for spending part of your day with us. It is our honor and privilege. If you've missed any portion of today's program or any other, please download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. You can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitter at the Brad blog. Drop us an email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. And as ever, our thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay independent on your public airwaves. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Good luck, world. Oh, 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 oh,